Welcome to a special bonus edition of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Clarissa Botsford. Clarissa is a writer, translator, and musician. She joins me from her home in Rome. Welcome to the show, Clarissa. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone who's going to be listening. <laughs> How is life in Rome? Oh, I mean, it was May Day yesterday and it was just glorious. Absolutely. I love this season when everything is in bloom and it's just blue skies and it's gorgeous. Definitely. I... I haven't I don't think I've lived a day in Rome without turning a corner and thinking wow this is an incredible city <laughs> and as you know I think you, I'm a celebrant as well and so I celebrate I officiate weddings here I'm a humanist celebrant and uh, so we get couples coming and of course when I see it through their eyes it's just it's just amazing. You were telling me just before about your hike a couple of days ago how was that? Oh, it's just, I mean, the, the thing about Rome is you're literally, you're half an hour from the sea and about 40 minutes from the mountains. I think the ancient Romans chose their spot very well. Uh, so you can get out very easily. And we had 24 hours, basically, it was, it was my three children, my three grandchildren and their partners. And so there were 10 of us all together and we camped out for the night and we had 24 hours. I mean, we left at Late morning on Saturday, we camped the night and everybody else had things to do on May the 1st. So we had less than 24 hours together, but it was so intense because you could just go up a mountain, be in the middle of nowhere, look out over the city lights and just be literally lost in a, in a kind of paradise. So when I come to Italy, uh, where are you taking me? Where are we going first? Well, I'm not sure that you're a hiker from your reaction to when I told you I was going to go hiking. But if you are, I would definitely take you to the, um, the Apennines, which are very close to Rome. But of course, there's so much to see in Rome that, you know, just in I live right in the center. And I think I always tell people who come and stay with me, just walk, just walk, follow your nose. Don't use a guidebook. Um, look up every now and then and look at the roofs, look at the terraces, look at the monuments, um, you know, look down every now and then and you'll see interesting things. Always turn the corner, follow your nose and just, you know, follow your curiosity and you'll always find something incredible. Well, I love hiking, so I'm going to take you up on that offer. Good. Okay. I'll take you <laughs> very happily. So you obviously grew up in the UK and you studied I did, over there. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about how you ended up in Rome? Well, I um, actually, my, my father is American and my mother's British. And um, we grew up in Britain when my mother decided she'd had enough and left my father. And she took us to England, where we grew up from, I suppose, for me, the age of about six, I think. So I was there all my school life and my university life. I studied, um, I started doing English at university and then I changed to languages um, because I wanted to have a year off. <laughs> and in the UK system, you get, if you're studying a modern language, you get a year in the country kind of provided as part of your degree system. And they don't pay for it, but it's, you know, you're allowed to do it. So I had a year in Italy from 1980 to 1981, and then I went back and graduated. And uh, meanwhile, I had met my 
future husband. And so at that point, I, and I also was offered a job as a lector in the Italian university, which is like an English language mother tongue lecturer. Um, and so I had a job and, I, you know, who could resist? I came back and I've stayed ever since. And your children grew up there as well, and they're now native Italian speakers, which is amazing. They're they're bilingual, absolutely. They're, I would say, equally proficient in both languages, speaking and reading and writing. They probably, they read more in English, because I always read to them in English. Um, Their working language is English, but when they speak to each other, they speak Italian. And in fact, they speak Roman, I would say. So uh, very much, I think they feel Italian, but they have a, a strong grounding in, in, in English. And when did your interest in literary translation begin? Well, I mean, for years, I was a jobbing translator in nonfiction. I worked at a nonfiction publishers for a while called La Terza. And so I translated a lot of history, the history of women, the history of food, those big kind of five volume uh, productions that were across Europe. Uh, and, you know, it was very much just bread and butter work. Uh, and then I finally decided when I was a bit older and I had a bit more time and the kids were older um, that I wanted to try my hand at literary translation. And I sent in a sample of The Sworn Virgin by Elvira Donis, who was a, is an Albanian writer who writes in Italian in order to get a sort of wider audience because nobody speaks Albanian. And I sent in a sample to the Penheim uh, translation grant and I got the translation grant for it and then I finished it and it was actually my first full-length novel publication by uh, published by and other stories in 2014 and it was a very special novel and it was a, a, a good way to start it was really a bang um, because you know all the themes that I'm interested in um, women gender in general um, families I- identity uh, language, all the things that come up in, in Erica Moo's novel that the Erica Moo that you interviewed very recently, uh, the same sort of the same sort of issues really, especially to do with language. We'll talk about Erica Moo's novel, um, First DC, which is out through Heloise Press. Um, I think it's a brilliant novel. It's so funny and the writing's amazing, which I, I assume is uh, now in English, thanks to you. Um, well, it's coming out in May. It's coming yeah, out in May. And thank right. you for your words about it. I loved, I loved the, uh, the things you said about the translation as well. Uh, so thank you for that. At the beginning, you write a, a really great piece. And I think in a way, I feel like this is the kind of thing where all translators should get a chance to do this. You wrote- I wish. A, yeah, but you write such a good introduction to your approach working with Erica. Do you want to tell us a bit more about working on that project and working with her? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I really have to thank uh, Aini Marti Balsels, who's the, the publisher, uh, to give us this chance. She really, uh, her, her publishing house is founded on the idea of women in translation and on giving the translator visibility. And so she asked me to write the translator's note and she put it at the front of the book, which is very unusual. I've only been asked one other time and it was at the back of the book. Um, So really very high visibility, you know, translator's name on the cover, all the things that translators, you know, love. So she is absolutely behind that. Working with Erica was just, you know, such a pleasure because as you say, the book is funny, um, 
sharp, uh, extremely perceptive. And so um, I realized immediately that she was of unique mind in a way. Uh, and so I also realized that she was um, very accessible. And so I, I worked on it a bit and then I asked to meet her. And we met her with the publisher. We had a Zoom session, a bit like we're doing now, the three of us. And I just threw out a few things. And then we just started, I mean, riffing in musical terms. We started riffing and we just kind of set each other off. And it was very exciting um, because she responded to my uh, even, you know, even giving me suggestions in English, because, you know, as you heard, she's she's quite proficient in English um, and she's just got a kind of she's got a, a hawk's eye for detail. Uh, and at the same time, this kind of uncanny sense for words and how you can kind of pick them apart and put them together again. And uh, she just does this all the time. She plays around with these compound words. And I think it's partly because she's, you know, looking at looking at the English as a foreigner. She even had a sort of an extra sensory perception compared to me, if you like, um, because she was able to see those words differently. You know how when you look at a word if you're very familiar with it, you don't think about its meaning. And then suddenly, if you're not familiar with it, you, you find new meaning in it. And in this novel, Maria, the protagonist, plays with words all the time. And so we were kind of mirroring the protagonist in a way. It's so interesting the way you translated it as well, because I think like from a technical point of view, some of the stuff she does with like etymology of words and um, the way she plays with the poetry and things like that, I imagine it would have been a really fun challenge to translate it. It was a fantastic challenge, but what made it so um, unique in a way was that she said, look, Clarissa, do what you like, do, do what you need to do. Because, you know, we didn't have that idea that the text was sacred. And of course, you know, with a living writer, if, if, if the writer gives you that kind of permission, it really kind of, it sets you free. And so she said, look, if that, if you're not translating it, if you don't need to translate, if you don't want to translate that word, just find another word for the original and translate it. So we literally did do, you know, what she called in your podcast, she called it transformation or transcreation. And, you know, it really was that because we had to create new compound words for the titles. We had to, because they just didn't, they didn't translate because they weren't necessarily two different words in English. Do you know what I mean? If a compound word has to be two different words for the game to work, mm -hmm. and they weren't always two different words, so we had to find other ones. So it was, you know, it was a sort of, um, it was a challenge. And as I was saying recently, you know, there was this feeling uh, that that I was thinking about it all the time, and 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 you know, as soon as I thought of one, it was like rush to the computer and get it down. Well, <laughs> I assume that that approach would be an individualized approach because I imagine some authors Absolutely. are not like that. And some publishers don't like, I mean, for instance, I work with Europa, which is, which is the Eleanor Ferrante uh, publisher, and they are ferociously for, I mean, you know, it's this house style for, for keeping the translation very, very close to the original. So completely different, um, you know, so they like, they really don't like it if you depart from in any way from the original uh, and they're you know they're quite careful to to monitor that and you know I respect it it's a different it's a different choice they they like to hear the sort of almost the rhythm of the Italian reflected in the English 
but Erica Moore was very open to having it a work of, of its own in English, a sort of, you know, a, a self-standing work in English um, rather than being a sort of, a, I don't want to call it a replica, but rather than it being a, um, a, a, a faithful rendition of the words in Italian. With translation, and I guess those different approaches you've spoken about, do you think there's something that makes a translation good? For me, uh, a translation is good when you don't realize it's a translation. So invisibility, I talk about that on my, my description of myself in my website. I tend to be a sort of um, a person that works in the, that, that is a kind of a voice for other people. When I'm a humanist celebrant, I'm celebrating people's lives or people's love, uh, but I'm a vehicle for their words. And I, you know, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm presenting a eulogy for a funeral, I'm using, I'm, I'm expressing the family's words. I write it myself. I write the ceremony myself and I, and I make it into a story, but I'm representing their words. And I like being that person in the middle. In fact, I call it sort of the middle voice. And in music, I tend to be the middle voice. If I'm playing the viola, say I'm, you know, I'm down in the middle somewhere. I'm not the bass. I'm not the soprano. I'm in the middle. And when I sing, I tend to be, you know, in the middle somewhere. So I think for me, a good translation is if you just don't even think it's a translation, you just read it and you think, wow, uh, this is a great book. Uh, and then suddenly you say, well, hey, it was in Italian. That's, and that, that adds an extra dimension to it. Hmm. You know, I mean, in the old days, we would, read a, we would read a classic, right? You know, Dostoevsky or something, and we weren't necessarily thinking that it was translated. We just thought this is, you know, the Karamazov brothers or... In terms of, I guess, translations of classic works and things like that do you think they need updating occasionally or do you think they should just remain the the same translation oh absolutely i mean i think you know you can create any number of of retranslations of the classics and they're always going to be you know original and there's they're always going to add something you know the, the greek the the tragedies that i mean you know a modern uh, a modern translation in sort of blank verse rather than you know, the old fashioned kind of um, rhyming style or, you know, keeping the Hendecker syllables or whatever. I think, you know, if you can break free from that, um, then you get some wonderful, wonderful translations of the classics that are absolutely, um, you know, a boon. In fact, very often there are, you know, there are prizes for sort of new translations of, of old uh, classic literature. If I have a massive checkbook and I come to you mm. and I say, um, I'm going to give you six months and I'm going to give you any book of your choice to translate. Uh, what would you choose? That's a difficult one because, of course, there's a, <laughs> there's a difference between something that's kind of like in your heart and something that you feel would be a commercial success. Um, I've, been, I've been trying to push a, a series now because I'm a sucker for series in, you know, on TV and in books um, for a kind of uh, female Montalbano set in uh, the Basilicata region where she's a this you know very strong feisty woman is a public prosecutor and you know I just think it's great and I love it and they've made a sort of they've made a tv series here in Italy it's very popular and I can't get anyone to publish it I you know I'm trying to kind of pedal it around um, but you know nobody really listens to the translator um, but then I have things from my heart which are which are very different. I mean, I've been, I've also been working on a, a Swiss Italian um, kind of prose poem 
uh, about Italian immigrant workers in Switzerland that's written in sort of blank verse in 70 chapters. And it's, you know, it's completely uncommercial. So that check would come in very useful. Um, Anything that's between genres is quite hard to get published. I've been working with um, Valerio Magrelli, the poet here, and he, he writes these kind of prose poems. I've published one called Condominium of the Flesh, and, and I've published a sample of Geology of a Father. They're these small, very distilled chapters, um, which are poetic and incredibly difficult to translate um, and very uncommercial, but wonderful. Are there any books that are completely untranslatable, do you think? Everybody says, you know, that must be impossible to translate, but translators love nothing more than a challenge. Mm. So I think, you know, uh, the one I'm working on at the moment, I'm working on Sasha Naspini's book, uh, which is set in a small provincial town, as usual. Um, and it's a sort of choral book with, with many different voices and, and lots of, of Tuscan dialect and rather crude um, images and, and metaphors. And it's, you know, I, I read it to an Italian and they say, that's impossible to translate. You could never translate that. And of course, every day I'm sitting there doing it. Um, and it, you know, it can take me a long time to just get one sentence right. Um, and you, you know, you kind of get into the voice. And once you get into the voice, you can, you, you, you kind of carve a path by listening to the rhythm, by, by, by trying to find an equivalent idiomatic expression. Uh, it's not easy, but it's, it's fun. In terms of work, um, does the publishers come to you with work or do you pitch all the time? How does that work? Uh, I mean, pitching is, is almost impossible nowadays because publishers just put on their website in big letters, no submissions, you know, that you just can't get, you can't get to them. I don't, I'm, I feel I'm disadvantaged or maybe that's just my excuse, but by living in Rome rather than in London or New York or one of the big publishing cities, um, I'm not, I'm not in the kind of um, select set of people that are first approached, I don't think. Um, but publishers do approach me more and more. I mean, I started late, so, you know, it's my fault in the sense that I'm a newcomer, relative newcomer. Um, and so, you know, I'm building up my practice like anybody. You know, if I were in my 20s, I would be building up my practice and in the same way. Uh, so I only have I have my experience of living here and my um, I think, you know, the fact that I know Italian deeply extreme and extremely well. So I never really never really have to look up a word. But then I so I, I can do it. My first draft, I always do literally just straight off because I don't have to stop and look up, look things up. I mean, I, my Italian is really very, very extremely deep I, my knowledge of Italian and even regional Italian and and culture and you know everyday life so and then in my subsequent drafts I will be you know uh, checking looking things up uh, making sure that you know that idiomatic expression actually means that and not something you know very very similar um, but I think, you know, that's what I rely on. And I hope that slowly, you know, translating is something you can do until the day you drop dead, I think. So uh, I hope to be able to continue and I hope that publishers will approach me more. 
In terms of dialect and things like that, is it hard going from, you know, I guess, like Roman to, to other forms of Italian? I mean, I don't speak Roman. I understand it. Um, but, you know, it's not just dialect. Sometimes it's idiolect. It's, it's um, the a kind of specific sense of humour that is different from region to region. I mean, it, you know, campanilismo, what they call campanilismo in Italian means, you know, every single town will be, you know, against the next town over and will have a different set of cultural values that are, you know, profoundly entrenched. And they, you know, they can they can be Pisa and Livorno. They're literally like 20 minutes away by by car or train. And they're they're like two different realities. And there will be a certain set of cliches about someone from Livorno and a certain set of cliches about someone from Pisa. And, you know, working your way around that, I think, is, you know, part of living here for, for, for a long time um, is what helps me. Uh, on the other hand, you know, some people would say that not living in the country that I'm translating, in the language that I'm translating into is also a, a disadvantage because, you know, um, that's why I have to read a lot in English um, is because you risk, you know, not updating your own language. In terms of your work, what are some of the most interesting pieces that you've worked on? Um, I mean, I've just recently, I've just done this um, Conchita de Gregorio, which is the, the book that uh, Erica Mu actually mm. suggested reading. Um, that's going to be coming out soon as well in the UK. Um, it's called The Missing Word, um, published by Europa. And it's, uh, it's, just a, it's just a wonderful, wonderful, it's a true story. And it's absolutely, it's one of those things that, it's one of those stories that are so hard to tell that the, the writer has to use such, uh, it's sort of like a block of marble, um, like Erica Moo's block of marble. And she's just chipped away at it until there's just that absolute core. And I think, you know, that's, that's what I appreciate in Italian. I think Italian writing is how it can be, it can be broken down to such small parts somehow, just the essential. It, Italian can be a very essential language. It's funny because everyone thinks of Italian as being rather um you know rhetorical and and highfalutin but actually italian like you know calvino or something is very very essential and it can you know it can go down to just very few words and and still express an awful lot and the the missing word has got this idea of the the, the fact there's a whole chapter on the fact that there's no word for a parent who's lost their child Mm. And, and, you know, because there's a word for orphan, there's a word for widow, widower, but there's not a word for a parent and how not having the word for it means there aren't, you can't express the emotion for it. And the, the style of, of the, the novel is just pared down to the essential because the, the emotion of the actual facts are so strong. And I love that kind of restrained Italian. In the Italian literary scene, are there some authors who you believe deserve to be more widely read in the English speaking world? I would say, you know, like 90% of them. I mean, there are very, very few that are picked up really. And unfortunately, because, because publishers rely on scouts and on, and on market recognition and on prizes and things like that, it's, you know, it's very often sort of the same people over and over again. Um, and there's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of movement now, luckily, to kind of recognize the new voices. I just recently published a translation by a Somali-Italian author called Christina Ali Farah, 
in um, the Italian Riveter, which is this magazine about new Italian writing. And that magazine, if you look at it, it's fascinating. Uh, it's worth picking up. You can pick it up, pick, it, pick up the PDF for free on the, uh, on the, the Riveter, European Literary Network. Um, and it will give you a, an incredible insight into Italian authors who are not, are not picked up, who are not really overlooked, um, who are completely overlooked. And there's, you know, a range of them from, you know, the sort of new Italians, people writing in Italian, like Elvira Donis that I first translated, uh, and like Cristina Ali Farah, like Ijaba Shega. They're Italians in every sense of the word, um, because they were, you know, born and brought up here. Um, but uh, there's a sort of, there are new voices coming in uh, and, and many uh, young authors who, you know, unless they hit the jackpot with a, with a, with a big literary prize, you know, I think it's the same in any country. Um, and there's not as much funding for Italian translation as there is, say, for French translation or German translation into English. So the government funding is really very, um, you know, the levels are extremely low. And publishers, you know, they, they, it's a risk for them and they have to, you know, be assured that there's a market. And so, of course, it's, it's, there's a lot of competition out there. I want to talk about the Elena Ferrante effect uh, for a minute because I think my perception of Italian writing for the last few years has probably been a little bit skewed by her because she's so prominent and I think everybody mm. who picks up a book by an Italian is expecting something like that. How has that changed the literary scene in Italy? I think it's definitely put Italy on the map. Um, the only problem is when everything has to be commercially somehow compared to Elena Ferrante. So, you know, if people start saying a near uh, or, a, you know, a Calabrian or a Sicilian Elena Ferrante or, you know, any woman writer suddenly is an Elena Ferrante or anybody from the South is an Elena Ferrante. And I think that kind of homolog, homolog how do you say that? Like making everything you say, homogenizing yeah. Yeah. is not, is not great for, for diversity, obviously. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of negative side. The positive side is that people are more interested in books about Italy, you know, and, mm -hmm. and they, they want to, um, they want to kind of evoke that idea of, you know, the South. The trouble is it's, you know, it's a slightly cliched idea of Italy. And what I, I like the novels, the ones I was talking about before set in Basilicata, uh, the, the Mariolina Venezia novels that I want to pitch, I want some publisher to pick up is completely unlike that kind of uh, cliched idea of, of, you know, especially I think the HBO productions just exaggerate that effect of, of um, you know, the old Naples. Um, and, and, you know, modern Italy is just so different. And, you know, there's, there's so much that, that is not picked up by the kind of, um, you know, the sort of TripAdvisor type books. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're, they're very, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot going on here and it's not all, you know, charming. Uh, and it's not all, obviously not on the intimate level either. Um, but it's, it's been, I think it's been a positive uh, thing for, for, for us translators because, you know, we, um, we there's certainly more interest now in Italian literature. Yeah, I think Erica's book really showed me that because I think it is so far removed from Ferrante. It's just something completely different. And it really, I know I'll be going back to Italian authors soon because I think that uh, 
hopefully that Ferente effect yeah. wears off a little bit and people read a whole lot of other things. From- well, she's, she's an example of somebody who's gone completely towards the essential and towards the kind of, um, she hates what she calls adjectivized, adjectivizing. So making everything into adjectives, you know, mm-hmm. she said she's, you know, she, she doesn't, she doesn't like that idea really. Um, and, you know, just that idea that it's supposed to be read in a day that it's set in 24 hours that it's um it's extremely essential and there's so much packed into it um in very little time and you really can read it in a day and I I heard that you said you read it in a day and Mm -hmm. she was happy that you'd read it in a day um if you can imagine when I when I translate I don't um I don't read ahead so I come on it literally fresh as if I was a reader and a translator is really the closest reader any author is ever going to get um so if you can imagine the 24 hours were excruciatingly slow they just it it heightened the emotional impact of translating it um and she herself says that it was as if she were writing a very long song so she's guided by the voice the rhythm and each reader is supposed to provide their music she said that on your podcast um so it was very much as if I was a reader providing my own soundtrack by translating it I have to ask you because obviously reading your writing, your writing so fresh and uh, so interesting and your approach is clearly, you know, really different to a lot of other translators I've spoken to. Have you had a go at writing fiction yourself? No, I have a bit of a block about that. It's it's part of that kind of middle voice thing. I don't, mm. I'm not naturally a protagonist. I know that sounds weird, but I... Um, I don't know whether it's because I'm scared or because I, I don't think I have any ideas. So it could be, you know, I need some assertiveness training or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, <laughs> I'm kind of happier finding, I mean, being a celebrant is very much the same thing. I mean, it's, you know, you are in some ways, you know, you're up on stage or whatever. If you're celebrating a wedding, you're very much visible. So it's not that I'm shy. It's that, I love people's stories and I love kind of mediating um, and being sort of like I'm an emotional conductor. I think I'm, I have, I have very strong empathy. I do funerals, a lot of funerals, and it's my favorite part of being a celebrant because here in Italy, they don't really have um, non-religious funerals, you know, and I, I that, just that feeling of telling someone's story, but the words are someone else's. They're not my words. And I love that. It's really interesting. You mentioned one of the projects you're working on at the moment. Are there any other projects you are working on? Um, well, at the moment, this is, I mean, it's massive. Um, I don't even know how many thousand words it is. I think it's um, its up in the 120,000 range. So it's mm-hmm. its the new Naspini, um, which is called Le Case, Le, Mal, uh, Le Case del Malcontento. Um, and I have to get that out of the way um i am i've just i'm working on the last draft of a book i'm about to hand in which i absolutely adore which is called um oliva denaro uh and it's by if you notice you might not be able to see Mm. it but it's an anagram of the author's name yeah uh and uh it's set in the early uh, 60s in sicily and it's a girl it's basically about It's a wonderful book. It should be read in schools across the country, across Europe, across the world, in America. Um, I hope it will be. It's about consent. 
but it's also about um, a law that was still in force in Italy until the 1980s about rape marriage, basically arranged an, a marriage that repaired the damage done by a rape. Mm. So basically it was the habit. It was common to, you know, just take the woman that you wanted, uh, do what you like with her and then kind of force her into marriage. And this novel is about that. Basically it's a girl who contests a, a, from a very a poor a peasant family, but who, has the self-respect not to accept this, supported by her family. And um, so that, I haven't actually given the final draft in, but that's going to be coming out, I suppose, next year for Harper Via in America. Okay. Um, so those are the two I'm working on at the moment, and I don't have any other work lined up um, as yet. All right, so publishers send work. Clarissa's send work ready. in, or yes, or... or Accept some of my pictures, <laughs> even better. All right, shall we move on to some of your gateway books, if you have any? Okay, well, uh, this is what I was going to say, basically, because um, I was thinking about it today, and I, and I realised I never really thought about it, but I realised that for me, reading was less of a gateway than a wardrobe, as in The Lion, the Witch, um, because I, I kind of would just close myself in the wardrobe and find new worlds, and the book, the book. So, I mean, I, I come from a large, noisy and quite troubled family and books were a refuge, definitely. So school libraries and stationery cupboards were my, that smell of fresh paper, you know, a new book. Um, I would also reread books a lot because, you know, I didn't have that many. And so I just would read books over and over again. Um, but when I was about seven or eight we were split up and fostered for for a period just because there was a you know problems basically and I was placed with a father of four boys and he was kind of into amateur theatricals and everything he had an incredible deep voice and he read he had four boys and I was I was you know I, I lived with them and he read first the Hobbit and then the Lord of the Rings out loud and to me just that act that sort of the act of being read to, I think, was my first ever experience of the power of words. Um, but I don't really have books that have formed me. I mean, I've just, I'm more of an eclectic reader and a voracious reader, I would say. And as I said before, I need to read a lot because I live in Italy and my daily life and quite a lot of my work is in Italian. So reading is a way to keep up my language uh, in all its you know, permutations through time and across continents and everything. Um, so I don't have those kind of, you know, books that changed my life, except for, I think what changed my life was the, the realisation of the power of words and the, the, the power of the magic of being able to close myself off completely. So now, now I just read a lot. Um, <laughs> page turners, crime. And, you know, I'm really thrilled and proud that Sasha Naspini, the same author I'm working on now, his book Oxygen that I translated has just been long listed by the Crime Writers Association for the dagger uh, crime in translation. So mm -hmm. um, I read, I mean, I love traveling to different countries. And so I read a lot of books that are set in different places, crime books, especially. I've just finished reading Van der Simon's Faceless which is New Zealand, set in Auckland. Um, the Chastity Riley series by Simone Buchholz, brilliantly translated by Rachel Ward, which is set in Hamburg in Germany. 
um, the Claudia Pinero series in Argentina, Eleanor Knows, it's just a recent one, translated mm -hmm. by Francis Riddle, the Icelandics, the Nordics. Um, I told you I'm a sucker for anything in a series. So, <laughs> and that's, again, it's the refuge. It's just the kind of escapism, I suppose. Um, and then I love strong women protagonists. And so, you know, again, my, my female public prosecutor that I'm trying to, um, that I'm trying to, yeah, exactly. Um, and then of course, you know, I will occasionally set my Kindle aside and read a, a physical book, which is more of a kind of what I would call a real book. Um, and they're usually some, you know, new work by an author I love or whose writing I really admire. Um, and then I will, you know, read those and savor them and, you know, savor the language and be inspired, really. Um, you know, I'll often think, oh, that's a great expression. Maybe I can use that somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I do. I read a lot um, and very eclectically. Hmm. So what's in your current reading pile and what books are you looking forward to? Uh, the moment I've, um, I've just finished, uh, I've been in the middle of for quite a long time, the new um, Joyce Carol Oates, Night, Sleep, Death, the Stars, which is just a huge sprawling brick of a book like this. You need a pillow to hold it up in your bed. Because, um, you know, if you're used to a Kindle, which is quite light, it's, um, and it's just wonderful. Uh, I like books about, you know, the, the, what someone called the texture and taste of family experience. Uh, and I think it's a theme that I relate to a lot, you know, coming from a big family. So, and the family is a kind of, as a site for drama and violence, um, rather than as a, you know, site for sort of um, Gucci Gucci, I love you type um, situations. So what one journalist called it a breeding ground for myth. Um, I love anyone that does that. So, you know, uh, again, uh, anything that, challenges the way I look at the world I think I mean for me it's someone that gives me an insight into an issue a social issue or family dynamics or mm, situations that I'm I want to learn more about I think you know as a, again as a humanist celebrant I I you know meet a lot of people and I get inside people's lives I get under their skin sometimes you know especially for a funeral immediately after a death um, so anything that gives me an insight, you know, like, I don't know, Meg Mason's Sorrow and Bliss recently, uh, Louise Beecher's This is How We Are Human, an insight into sort of, you know, maybe mental illness or situations of that kind. Um, the Girl with a Louding Voice by Abidare. Pretty Tane as we are that, we that are young. Um, Bernadette of Aristo's Girl, Woman, Other. Uh, again, sort of a a view also for me living away from the UK now anything that gives me an insight into how ugly the U UK has become <laughs> I find I find like it's useful but it also kind of there's a sort of schadenfreude about it you know it's like I don't live there anymore um and then also about you know Chimamanda Adichie's Americana for instance um Colin Whitehead's The Underground Railway uh, Richard Flanagan's The Sound of One Hand Clapping, Jeanette Winterson, anything she writes, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, or Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal, things that have a kind of biographic element as well, because I, I write stories 
as a celebrant. And so, you know, people's stories are kind of endlessly fascinating for me. Before we wrap it up, do you want to tell everybody where we can go and find your work in translation and get in touch with you? Okay, well, I mean, I have a website, which is my name. So www.clarissabotsford, that's B-O-T-S, T for Tommy, S for Sugar, F for Freddy, as my mother used to say, yeah. um, uh, And there's a you know list of sort of my recent translations there and a few things that have you know happened to me recently. Uh, and then the Erica Moo Thirsty Sea, which was the subject of your podcast with her, is available at Heloise Press and at independent bookstores uh, everywhere, hopefully, um, including hopefully in Australia uh, in the future. And it's uh, Heloise Press, um, first you see, and uh, also the Conchita de Gregorio, the missing word is available. Uh, I think it's, um, I think it's just come out now. I think it's just published uh, for Europa editions, again, available in uh, bookstores and very, very much worth a read. Absolutely, I, I really want that book to go far, partly because it's, um, it's a, a true story and partly be, you know, because the proceeds will go to missing children, uh, a missing children site that the, um, the subject of the book set up. So I really want that book to travel. And it's, you know, it's just, oh, it's just, it gets you, but it also inspires you. As I wrote recently, it, you know, it makes you feel that everything you have is more precious. So it's definitely worth a read. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for staying up in Italy. And yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking with yeah. you. And thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. And sorry you had to get up so early to do this. <laughs> but, no um, but you said you like it. So have a very good day. Thank you. Thanks once again to Clarissa Botsford. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod. And you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with you next episode next week.